if you hear somebody with the job title futurist, I bet it doesn't automatically endear you to that person, does it? Be honest, it probably doesn't. But Mark Stevenson, for the benefit of the next half hour to 40 minutes, do me a favour, make an exception. He is a walking continent of common sense. Mark started life, I mean, he's had a varied career. He still dabbles in theatre and music. He used to be a stand-up comedian. But where he makes most of his money now, what fills most of his time now, is advising big corporates and big organisations on how to get the most from the future. How to harness the power of young people. How to involve climate change in your thinking. He makes a business out of, and he's paid by some of the biggest organisations in the world. I spoke to Mark at his house, hence the uh, audio quality, and Mark talks about how he got started in his role, the work that he does, and then I asked Mark for a few things that we could take away into our daily lives. I asked Mark Stevenson, the futurist, for his rocket fuel. So first thing to say, Mark, is thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, the first section in, in this series of podcasts is designed to get to know the person we're talking to. Okay, sounds dangerous. Um, give us, give us a, an example of your journey. How have you ended up doing what you're doing now? <laughs> well, that's quite a tough one. Did stand-up come first? No. Well, yeah. It, well, okay. Was stand-up a device to communicate the, the bigger I'm gonna, thing? I'm going to answer this in the way my wife would answer it, actually. Because my wife says that if you look at everything I've done, it's always been about communication. So every job I've done has been about translating something from one audience to another. Um, and I started off, actually, on the one hand, being a computer geek, which was kind of translating specifications into software. And on the other hand, being a pop musician, translating thoughts about philosophy or romance into songs to an audience. And uh, then I freelanced for a bit and then I set up a couple of companies and then I went to work for a big company, which I kind of hated, but learned a lot. And I asked myself what I really care about. And I thought I cared about battling cynicism and systemic problems in the world. And then I thought, how do you communicate that to a wide audience rather than just talking to geeks and policymakers? So I became a stand-up comedian doing gigs about climate change or social injustices or inequality or whatever. And then I got offered a book deal because of that. And I wrote a book and then that got read by lots of people in lots of countries. And then they started fanning me up and saying, will you come and talk to us? And then they said, oh, will you stay and consult? And then I wrote another book and then I apparently became a futurist. Yes, a reluctant Reluctant, futurist. yeah, because I never called myself a futurist. Everybody, that I wrote two books with the word future somewhere on the cover. And then people started calling me a futurist. And I, I think futurism is a fairly shabby profession. So I am reluctant in the, in the sobriquet, but it is the nearest thing to what I do, which is getting my clients to understand the big questions the future is asking and then helping them architect their strategies, businesses, shareholdings, where they recruit to answer those questions 
in the service of making the world more sustainable, equitable, humane or just. You can tell I've said that before, can't you? Yes, I can. <laughs> Silly question first. What's the difference between a futurist and a futurologist? Uh, whether you live on one side of the Atlantic or the other. Okay. So it's just, it's just a, uh, a semantic thing. It's just thing. a quirk of the language. Or, but actually, there is also um, futurism, the art uh, movement. So there's an art movement in art uh, called futurism. So, so futurologist is probably better because it doesn't get confused with with being a futurist, which is a particular type of artist. And at the minute, you work for yourself writing books, you work for big corporations. Mm. Who who defines the scope of your role, I suppose? And, and by extension of that, what do you say no to? Well, I will work with anybody, pretty much, who I believe has something to say about making the world not Okay. Because uh, it is largely so at the moment and getting more so. So I will work with anybody who... I think I can have a positive impact who is up for it. There are a few notable exceptions. I won't work for arms dealers. I won't work for tobacco companies. I won't work for gambling ventures. Because a lot of what I talk about is innovation and how to think differently. So unless a gambling company is going to come to me and say, how can we move away from gambling to move into renewable energy, for instance, I'm not going to touch them with a barge pole. Right. So I, but I, what I do work is I work at a very high strategic level so what i'm doing is i'm sitting with quite senior people and getting them to question the very fundamentals of how they think about a themselves b business c society and then saying to them look you've got a big tool here to do something about those answers what are you going to do with it which means i spend a lot of my time under crushing non-disclosure agreements but my clients will range from anybody i mean i can't talk about all of them but on the one hand i work for medicine sans frontier uh the disaster response charity helping them think about strategy and on the other hand i work for weatherby's private bank which is the bank you go to if you think coots is too chavvy for you it's right. literally the poshest bank in the world okay made of incredibly elite customer base and what we're doing there is working with them to think how can we shift influence help that customer base do more good in the world which of course is a massive lever if you can get that kind of customer base to do where do you get your inspiration have you ever had a mentor or there are various places you look for you, you look for people's bodies <laughs> of work and that excites you how, do, how does that work uh I know. I mean, I'm. I guess my inspiration is questions. I'm always thinking. Well, you know, clearly here's a problem. Here's a question that's being asked of the world. Like, you know, how do we move from a sort of extractive way of dealing with the world to a more regenerative one? Um, I mean, there are a few people that I I take a lot of comfort from. My wife being the best of the all of them. In that, without her, I think I'm sure I'd I'd probably be in some kind of institution by now. Um, and my, I suppose the other person who really inspires is my good friend Ed Gillespie, who's another reluctant futurist, um, who, in the face of any adversity, will find the way to find good in people and in situations, and then work with what little good there sometimes is to build much more good. And he's a, he's a constant inspiration to me. I just want to co- cover a couple more questions in this bit. The first one is um, kind of a grand question, and that is, what do you think you're, you're known for? Is there, is, there <laughs> one, is there one characteristic? Is there one thing that you're... That, yeah, people will say, he does this. Um, oh, it's a really good question, and it's very vainglorious transfer, because I mm-hmm. think other people should really answer what they think of me. It seems to be, and again, I say this obviously through the lens of being me, so it's very hard for me to be accurate about this, but it seems to be that I have an ability to speak truth to power and get them to feel something that they sometimes previously may have thought. I mean, I like to say that the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. 
So I can make people feel that we need to change the world. And then once they've felt it, I can get them to then move towards doing something. So I guess I'm a, a catalyst or an irritant that you actually like. In a, you know, And I use humour a lot. And I, I, the reason I want to talk about humour is because you can tell a joke about something um, and people will laugh at it because it's true. And they'll thank you for helping them see that. It's, you know, stupidity about the world or that contradiction about themselves. Um, whereas if you'd said it to them straight, they'd punch you hard in the face and ask you to leave. So I can help people move beyond their existing frame of reference to the new one they get to, in a, I suppose, in a way that's both challenging but also offers them a roadmap that it doesn't totally destroy their will to live or question everything they've done previously. Just on stand-up comedy, yeah. is that... An- you you mentioned using humour. Is that an an area that you've left behind now? Stand up comedy. I don't do stand up anymore mm. because to do stand up consistently well, you have to be doing it a lot. Right. You know, it's I, I imagine it's very similar to being a, a sportsman. You know, you've got to be constantly doing your thing. Yeah. Because you have to be spun up in a certain way, and um, and I have friends who are stand ups. Uh, in fact, I'm about to start doing a podcast with John Richardson. You know. And you know he's constantly keeping himself up to speed and researching stuff and being on top of current affairs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't do that, but I but I I still write comedy. I had a play that toured last year and is going to tour next year again. But actually, what I do is I use what I call comedic thinking a lot, because what comedians often do, what what comedy is at its best, is the truth. In that the jokes you laugh at are the truest and are often the most succinct. And so using the tools you might use to develop a comedy sketch or routine are often the tools I will use in working out what is the essence of this? Where am I getting to it? Where's the absurdity? Also, the thing about comedy is it's a very interesting way to think about innovation because every punchline is an innovation by definition. With comedy, you're taking, giving people two facts, say, which is a setup, and then you're making them leap to something they hadn't thought of. Because if you see a punchline coming, it's not funny. So actually, it's also a way to open up people to a quite innovative mindset, using humour as a way to free them up to surprising ideas or whatever. And so um, David Ogilvy said this quite well. He said, make your thinking as funny as possible. All the best ideas come as jokes. Interesting. It's the second time in this series David Ogilvy has been referenced Mm. and indeed quoted. Um, I just want to ask one more question, and that is we ask everybody in this section around the sort of people that they like working with. Now... I know that you're working for lots of different people in lots of many different ways. Is there a commonality, a behaviour trait that you think is the most important to have in people in order for them to be accepting of your ideas, in order for them to fully understand the the work that you're doing? Is there just something that you insist on when when you meet a group of people? No, and I think if you do, you're probably not being as useful as you could be because uh, Desmond Tutu says this well if you want to create peace you don't go and talk to your friends you're going to talk to your enemies and so no I I don't insist on anything really it's my job to do my job well and if I'm doing my job well then hopefully I'll move in a usefully societal direction as I said there are there are some people that I I won't help just because of the way the institution is set up but but that's very rare and I would probably work with those people personally if they came to me but uh, to help them change or move into a different career so no I think and I think if you put those kind of restrictions on then yes you're, you're probably not helping too much I mean 
obviously, the, you know, I work in a world where which is slightly different to other people's. You know, if we're talking about terrorism or violence, there might be some people say, "I'm not going to talk to you until you put down your arms." I'm, I don't work in the peace negotiation world. So. Sure. So, you know. so I'm still here with Mark Stevenson, and the second part of the Rocket Fuel podcast is where we get to know a little bit about the work that the individual that we're talking to is doing now. Mark's work is broad, is vast. There's been a stand-up comedy phase. There's you're still writing books. Is are there are there plans for more books? There is. I'm desperate to write number three at the moment. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And there's a podcast around the corner as there well is. that you mentioned. Yeah. Yep. But the bulk of your work is talking to organisations and corporations to challenge their thinking. I yes. Suppose. Yeah. And what does that look like? Is it you go on a Monday morning at 10 <laughs> o'clock to meet the key team. You How how do you structure that? I know it sounds like a very detailed so, question. Uh, it usually starts off with, um, I get asked to go and do a speech. Because because uh, I have a background in stand-up and, and theatre as well, um, and because I'm a comedy writer, um, I'm quite good at public speaking. And I use that advising that if I'm sure if you've been to most business conferences the standard of public speaking is pretty poor mm. it's because most of us aren't trained to do it and actually most people find it quite hard whereas I find it easy so and the second reason is that my subject is the future so everybody's interested in that so I'm very easy hire for a keynote speech at a conference or you know your annual away day or whatever so I get hired to do that and that's nice uh, but what I do is when I go and I just take no prisoners and go well okay this is your business this is what's happened to the planet this is what you need to do and people are kind of shocked and they're sort of inspired and then what happens after that if I've got time or whatever, they'll say, well, it was really good. Could you stay and do some consultancy or work with us on this or blah, blah. And if I if I think they're up for it, rather than paying lip service, and I'll say yes. And then I'll engage in consultancy and stuff like that. And, and as you said, the third part of the stuff is writing books and doing broadcasting and all that kind of stuff. Because what I'm trying to do there is change the culture of the future to be a more literate about the big problems we face and more optimistic about how we might solve them. And optimism is a really huge word throughout all of all of yes. your work. And I'm, and I'm not even an optimist. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting, because my question was going to be, actually, can you approach these big problems? Do you have to have an element of pessimism to look for the problems in the first place? Or is it all, are you always of an optimistic disposition because you have to have the belief that you can change? I, I, well, it's... Uh, Something I ask a lot. I am what I call a possibilist. Okay. So if you look at the way the world is going at the moment, it's very, 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 very bad. And I'm not saying everything is bad, but, you know, look at the climate piece, you look at the inequality piece, et cetera, et cetera. None of it's good. Um, and if you carry on the way we're going, it's it's going to get worse and worse. And that is, and we're, you know, we're on a knife edge now, particularly with the climate piece. So that is also very depressing. Um, but if you cannot imagine a better future, and cannot imagine you've got a role to play in making it, then there's, there's, you're part of the problem. I mean, you know, you have to be able to dream of a better future because if you can't do that, how, how on earth are you going to go and make it? So I, I believe in optimism of ambition and pragmatism of approach. So I'm not, I, I'm anti-cynics. I can't bear cynics because cynicism is obedience to the status quo. You're b- about everything and do nothing to change it and try and stop people who are trying to change it. But I am all for scepticism, which is an engineering mindset and kicking the tires on people's solutions and working out how those things fit together and you know who benefits and who doesn't. So kind of a systems thinking, pragmatic possibilism is how I would describe it. It's not very catchy. Okay. <laughs> and on that, the the scope of the solutions that you're looking to find yeah. 
seems incredibly broad. Yeah. It seems to me that across all of your work, that without societal change that involves commerce, that involves politics and politicians, that involves every key institution in society changing, mm -hmm. do you ever fear that in order to make all of those work together, that actually the focus is too broad? Do you think, do, do you think those that have a, a single-use policy, because... Because we're often hearing that party politics leaves younger generations cold. It's mm. individual issues. Yeah. So should we be fighting this for change on all fronts? Not yeah, I think everybody's... See, Alice Walker says this as well. She says, uh, and for listeners who don't know, uh, Alice is a brilliant American novelist, most famous perhaps for The Colour Purple. Um, and she said the, the easiest way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. So we need people to think about systemic issues. We also need people to think about point issues. And the point, what I try and do is bring those people together in a coalition. So I have an equation I use in my work, which is legitimacy plus capability equals action. Lots of people with legitimate voices who actually have no capability to do anything about it. And sometimes many of us feel that way. Lots of people with capability to do stuff about it, whether that's people with money or positions of power who don't really have the legitimacy to, you know, because of who they are, where they've been or, or their history. And so what I try and be is the plus quite often and try and give the people with legitimacy some capability and the people with capability some legitimacy and then you get action. And it's not always pretty. Um, and nothing ever is. And I am very against people who have shining point solutions to every single problem. It's going to get messy. The point is, on balance, is it going to be slightly better than it was yesterday? And then the next day is going to be slightly better than the day before that. And that's the only way you make change happen. Which means it's generational, it's long-term, you've got to be in it, you know, form from the day you start to the day you die what gives you hope that change could even will happen because it has previously you know the mere fact that we're sat here having this nice chat you know in a country with a you know despite what's happening a stable governmental system where the water runs and whatever that doesn't happen that you know that didn't happen by accident no it hasn't happened everywhere in the world but change has happened um you know i was just in south africa this week you know and there's many many problems still with south africa and I was talking about some of them, but, you know, the conversations I was having, particularly with young black South Africans, you know, while I was there, were markedly different from the ones I would have been having, you know, when I went 20 years ago. And it's not perfect. There's lots of things still wrong, but change does happen. And you have to believe it does. Because uh, if you believe it can't, then it won't. Um, the, the problem we have at the moment is the change we need, particularly on the climate piece, needs to be way faster and way deeper than anything we've done previously. And that is problematic. I want to focus on two articles that I've seen recently. You may say that no, I said nothing like that. But <laughs> nice. um, let's focus first on Extinction Rebellion. There was a piece in the FT there was, yes. last year that said that you have some sympathy or you understand why Extinction Rebellion are doing what they are doing. I have doing. more than sympathy. I have an extraordinary admiration for Extinction Rebellion. I think they're a, a wonderful you bunch of people. You think what they are doing is necessary Absolutely. in order to cause change because everything that's happened beforehand hasn't caused enough oh, I think that's unfair. I mean, you know, I've been in the sort of sustainability environmental game for 20, 25 years. Lots of stuff has happened and has done, you know, and been brilliant. You know, there's been business people building, you know, a solar power and wind power industry, for instance, blah, 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 you know. But what they've done is they've raised it up to the point where, in this election, for instance, all the parties are kind of competing to say which is the greenest. Now, if you'd have said that 10 years ago, they'd have been bizarre. So they, they've done a very good job of 
of moving things forward. They asked for, you know, declaring a climate emergency, carbon neutrality by 2030 in a citizens' assembly. Well, what they've got so far is the government's declared a climate emergency, the parliament has. Theresa May on her way out committed to 2050, was what they wanted, but it's further along. And the government is, as we speak, assembling a, a citizens' assembly to, to help them think about climate change. You know, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. They have some organisational problems because they're de- they, they grow very quickly, which means they're decentralised, which means you sometimes get, you know, people on the fringes of it uh, attacking public transport, which the leadership, of course, were like, oh, my God, that's a really dumb move. And they now have this problem of how do you move from a decentralised organisation, which has lots of reach, to one that doesn't end up losing the goodwill because of things like that. Yeah. Okay. The second article that I saw was, again, last year, and I found this fascinating. I know you're a father. I, too, am a father. I am. And this was around the lack of unscheduled playtime. <laughs> yes. And you were saying that this lack of unscheduled playtime will lead to... In an innovation and creativity shortage in the next generation. And it wasn't having the fact that the kids can't go out and run and play. It was the fact that you wanted them to be challenged by having an imagination to create the play, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, well, you, I'm sure you've had this. If, you, if you're running a workshop or anything for a client and, and you want to give them stimulus... And, you know, I've found this, and it took me ages then. I'm sat there and I've been hired you know, for quite a lot of money to sit there and help them think about new innovation and new things. And I'll set them a task. And actually what you want them to do is go and sit and work on it together and interact and blah, blah, blah. And you have to actually stand back because your, your, your instinct is like, well, I'm studying, they're paying me. I should keep intervening. And actually you find if you do that, they end up thinking like you're thinking. They end up answering the questions you want them to answer. They end up you know, taking the solutions on that perhaps you might have mentioned. So you need to step back. You need to create the environment for creativity and quite often you need to step back and see what comes out. And, um, and we're so worried about our kids' education that quite often we, we step in and try and get them to think in certain ways. I do it with my children. I have to stop myself thinking, you know what? Just go and make a cup of tea and let them play yeah. rather than trying to help him build that ship or whatever he's trying to build because he'll work it out himself and he, and he probably should. And when he needs me, he'll ask. Okay. I suppose one thing as well is this, this kind of thinking around counterculture and being alternative thinking. Yes. Is that badge that you wear with immense pride? I don't think I am that person at all. And, uh, you know, what is the... <laughs> is it an alternative to thinking sometimes that is, actually. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what people... You know, I mean, you know what they call alternative medicine that works, don't you? You know, medicine. Yeah. So the I'm all for different points of view, but there is a, a huge amount of laziness by people who haven't thought systemically, who don't want to engage with... Um, difficult conversational partners and they call themselves alternative I mean Desmond Tutu said this well he said if you want peace you're going to talk to your enemies not your friends yeah and so I don't think I'm alternative at all I sometimes bring alternative viewpoints to people on both sides of the coin and say well and that's one of the great joys of my job in that one day I will be with astronauts and I'll be doing the rocket fuel podcast Mm. and then I'll be with tomorrow I'm with the cabinet office and the day after that I'll be with the housing association and what that means is I can suddenly help my clients by going like well actually if you were a neuroscientist they might frame this question that way they might think about that so like, you can bring those different perspectives from around the place so I don't think I'm alternative but I think I'm broad and I think that's what we should have, need a lot more of a lot more engineered serendipity in our world because we we often told to go and focus on one thing for 10 years sit in the same you know office with the same 10 people for 10 years thinking about the same 10 problems and then and then our bosses come along and say now you've got to be creative and it's like you've just spent the last 10 years 
literally focusing me on one or two things and now I can't think creatively because I'm institutionalised. And you're passionate on the way people work as well and, and, and maybe looking at a difference in the way that work is structured. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the way the work is structured is, is clearly, and you know, it's not me that said this, it's, been so it's clearly based on hierarchies, economies of scale and specialisation. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that in certain situations. And there are certain businesses and organisations, I think, probably work best in that way. I don't think it's how human beings work best generally. You know, in my work, the solutions I've worked with or seen or written about or helped implement that have succeeded in doing sustainable systems change on 80% of the time they're characterised by what I call bottom-up, diverse, collaborative working. So it's coming. It's it's much more economies of distribution rather than economies of scale, um, and uh, much more networked way of working rather than um, hierarchical way of working. It still requires a certain leadership, but it's a leadership that gives power to people and rather has it over them. And I think that tends to work a lot better. But it's not it's not easy to do. You know, there's this kind of lazy thinking that crowdsource solutions you just throw a problem out there and the crowd will magically solve it for actually how you curate that crowd how you get them to work together what question you ask when you step in when you step away it's a different kind of leadership and that takes as much work as being a leader of you know a big hierarchical organization well i might now ask you the stupidest question you've ever been asked oh good i'm looking forward to that here we go do you watch ramsey's kitchen nightmares i don't watch anything i've got two children under four years old okay (laughs) Let me bring it to life for you. So in Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares, he goes into a restaurant and he gives his opinions on how they should change. And then he goes back to visit, similarly with Grand Designs as well, goes back to visit after the, the change, two, three months later. And some of the restaurants have implemented all of Gordon Ramsay's changes mm-hmm. and they're flying. Mm-hmm. Some of them have reverted back to their old ways. Mm-hmm. You can guess where this question is going. Mm-hmm. And they are either failing or they're doing exactly what they were doing before. Mm. When you are invited into an organisation, into a corporation, mm. I'm, I'm not suggesting you leave them with a 10-point plan, but mm. I am suggesting you would like to hope that there has been some impact mm. in what you've done. Yeah. Have there been examples where they have completely ignored you? You don't have to name names. Have there been examples where they've accepted... Yep. Um, and what does success and failure look like in those examples? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and the reason that they tend to fail is because of the five most important words ever said about organisational culture ever, which is culture strategy for breakfast by Peter Bruce Drucker. And it's not that they don't know they need to change, but that they're, they're not prepared to change the culture of an organisation. And if you don't change the culture, they won't ask different questions. They won't ask the right questions. So they can they can say it and they want and they want to do it. And I've had CEOs literally crying saying, I can't don't know how to move my own organization. I'm the CEO. So um if they're not prepared to indulge in a cultural shift, then you've got real problems. Um those that do though, they tend to succeed more and more. It becomes a bit of a virtuous circle. So I was um in a company recently, who I won't name, um, but their culture was insanely good. Like everybody who worked there never left. They took people, you know, from the lowest levels of organization with no qualification, couldn't even speak the language of the country they were in, you know, and 10 years later, they were, you know, top flight managers. Um, the company is really engaged on a sustainability journey or whatever. You know, and I, it was really interesting to me because they had the culture where everybody said, we're part of a team and we're part of something bigger. And organizations that embrace that culture shift where you can bring 
who you are as a person into work. So I often do this um, question when I'm doing a talk. I'll go, put your hand up if you care about the future and the environment. Everybody puts their hand up. I go, right, keep your hand up if the organisation you work for is um, carbon neutral and environmentally positive. And they all put their hand down. And you go, well, so what, what happened on the way into work? Because you're the people who run it, so what happened? So um, you need to be able to shift culture. And again, because of my background in theatre and comedy and all that kind of stuff, I have some knowledge about how to move people's hearts. And when they move their hearts, then the culture will change. Final question in this section, if that's right. What's the piece of work that you're most proud of? And do you set yourself key performance indicators, to use that awful corporate turn of phrase? What does success look like and what are you most proud of? Um, well, I tend not to do favourites because I think they're kind of false choices. It's not work. I think the thing I'm most proud of is, is my marriage in that I really punched above my weight <laughs> and have managed somehow to sustain a relationship with the most wonderful woman in the world and have two children. And that, I think, is that gives me a lot of... Pride is the wrong word, but a lot of comfort. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of pride, really. I, I, I am pleased that I feel that my life is useful. You know, I see my job as trying to move the world a little bit in the direction of sustainability and humanity and justice and compassion. And, and I have had some some success doing that. And that in itself is enough because, you know, when I open up that bottle of beer on a Friday night, I kind of think, you know what, I'll probably on balance, I probably did more good this week than bad and it's not perfect and I've got a long way to go. But I'm... I guess I'm proud of what I'm doing generally. I've got this question I often get asked to mentor young people or people in the, you know, early in their careers. And, and um, one of the questions I often ask is, if I gave you a billion pounds, what would you do? And, and what I'm basically saying is, I'm going to remove from you any possible financial worry you could ever have. So what would you do with your life after you've obviously drank a lot of champagne and gone on a very nice holiday? And uh, it's interesting what people say. And they come back with, I do this. You go, right, okay, so how are we going to structure your career so you do that anyway? And then one of them, somebody asked that back to me. And they said, well, if I gave you a billion pounds, what would you do? And I said, I'm doing what I'm doing now, but faster. So I think I'm probably proudest of the fact that I've created a job I don't have to escape from. The last section in this podcast is the section that we actually call rocket fuel. Okay. So some practical insights, some takeaways that okay. our listeners can grab hold of and use as right. much as possible in their daily lives. Actual useful as opposed to, you know, the bland opinion. Well, there we go. <laughs> That's one way to differentiate it. Um, we as a business at Rocket are focused on young people, everything from babies right the way through to millennials. Right. Um, and, and this has been designed as a learning exercise for us. So kind of a question from your experience, if you like, mm -hmm. but what do you know about young people? What do you know about the way young people work that, older people don't how do their behaviors change well i think we we all know how young people work because we used to be them mm. and what you remember is that you had a much more aspirational and ambitious view of the world when you were young and slowly it gets crushed out of you by cynicism and the media and the needs of the day job and whatever and so what i know about young people is they're still they're still ready to change the world and right now the world needs changing rather dramatically. So um, that's why I like working with them. <laughs> oh, we always hear as marketers and as brand people that authenticism, authentic communication yeah. is key to young people. Yes. 
Is there anything else that you think that young people see as important? That's a really good question because I, I mean, it's very, you know, I'm 48, so it's, I do not want to speak for young people. What I find is that when I work with the young people I work with, and I appreciate that may be a subset because of the work I do, what they are hungry for is a bit more bloody ambition from the world that they want authenticity and by and when they say authenticity they say authenticity actually talk about the stuff that really matters social justice climate change they are ambitious for themselves as well but they want they are they are constantly befuddled i think by the lack of ambition shown by people older than them and I don't know whether they're fearful that they will become those people. And final question. I would just like for our audience of people that with an interest in youth culture, youth right. marketing, is there one takeaway that they should walk away with from this conversation and from you? Stop thinking about people as young people or old people. I've just been doing some work with Independent Age, actually, which is an ageing charity. And I said one of the problems we, we have is that we separate people into all these different groups. And actually there's a bigger narrative over the top of all of it, which we need to get rid of, which is consumerism. So we tend to think, what is an old consumer? What is a young consumer? What is a this consumer? Like, no, replace the word consumer with the word citizen. Replace the word consumer with the word team player. Replace the word consumer with the word friend. And then think about how you change the world. And it may be that product you're marketing makes no sense anymore. You need to drop that client. John Alexander, who runs a new citizenship project, says this very well. He says, we used to be subjects, then we were told we're all free, we're now consumers. Now so we don't want consumers anymore, we want to be citizens, we want to have an active role in the choices that are offered to us. And if you ask somebody a question, you say to them, as a consumer, how do you feel like this? They will answer more selfishly than if you ask them exactly the same question with, as a citizen, how do you feel about this? So it's not about young or old, it's about getting rid of the consumer mindset that says we're all there to be sold at and buy shit. We're all here to make the world a better place. So it's not about young and old, it's about citizen rather than consumer. Mark, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for doing the Rocket Fuel podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can people can find out more about what you're up to? What, what What's the best place for them to go to? Uh, Where's my website, which is markstevenson.org, which is, as all these websites are, hugely out of date. Um, at Optimist on Tour is my, is my Twitter handle. I'm painfully easy to find. Um, uh, and yes, e and email and, and whatever. So wonderful. Uh, yeah. I found you after all. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, except for making me travel all the way to New Cross Gate, that was one of the most enjoyable afternoons I've spent working on this podcast. I'm sure you'll agree, Mark was fascinating to talk to and came across really well. If you've got any thoughts on this, any other guests that you'd like to appear on Rocket Fuel, or simply would like to share it with someone who you think will get the most out of it, then be sure to share the podcast, give us a five-star rating and review, and hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you next week for next week's Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.